0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. You are listening to a preview clip to the Freemasonic History of the United States, Part 8. This is part of an ongoing series where we explore Freemasonry and all of its associated fraternal and esoteric secret societies. Now we haven't talked much yet about black Freemasonry in the United States and where it was during the late 1800s. Well, in the book, A History of Freemasonry Among Negroes in America by Harry E. Davis, he said that one of the most pivotal black Masonic lodges to arise in the United States since the actual Prince Hall Africa Lodge, the original one, was what was called the Alpha Lodge of Newark, New Jersey. Harry E. Davis says, This should be known to every student of Masonic history in the United States, for it bears the unique distinction of being the only lodge here made up of both white and colored masons and affiliated with a white grand lodge. Generally, it is classed as a colored lodge. It has been charged that its charter was obtained by a species of trickery but there is no doubt that the proceedings, incident to its organization, were quite regular. There is evidence, however, of a concealed design on the part of its sponsors, although they did nothing illegal. It's a little bit confusing exactly what transpired, but Harry E. Davis says, At the 1870 communication of the Grand Lodge, a petition from F.H. Swers, Jeremiah Evans, and ten other Prince Hall Masons asking for a warrant for Cushite Lodge, Newark, was received and referred to a special committee. The petition was denied in 1871 on recommendation of the committee, not, however, because of patent technical defects in the application, but rather on the theory that the Masonic lineage of the applicants from Africa Lodge was tainted with Masonic vice. The vice being that Prince Hall had no authority to establish subordinates in Philadelphia and Providence or to form a Grand Lodge from which the petitioners descended. The committee did assert that race or color did not operate to bar membership in lodges in New Jersey and pointed out the regular method to be pursued. Now, basically what happened is the white Grand Lodges tried to keep saying that Alpha Lodge was guilty of un-Masonic conduct. And all really Alpha Lodge was guilty of in reality was trying to create a non-segregated lodge for white and black freemasons together that's really what they were guilty of there was really no false pretenses here they weren't just saying hey we know we're a grand lodge now and we have the authority to do X, Y, and Z." they were trying to go through the official channel so by alpha lodge trying to do this trying to create the first unsegregated lodge like this it could open the door for and start a precedent for essentially more desegregated lodges and more Black Masons being accepted into white lodges. And this is something, obviously, that many, many Freemasonic lodges around the country didn't want. And Albert Pike obviously made very clear why he didn't want it. And he stated so in the last episode. We go over that. Eventually, after several years of trying to get this charter and battling back and forth with the Grand Lodge of New Jersey, author Harry E. Davis says that. New Jersey should take honest pride in the fact that its Grand Lodge did restore the charter of Alpha Lodge eventually. The master seat was not occupied by a colored person in Alpha Lodge until 1879, about seven years after its actual certification. By 1881, all of the principal offices were filled by colored members. All the charter members of Alpha except one gradually ceased their connection for one reason or another by 1885. Except one being brother William Clark. And masons until the 20th century still saw Alpha Lodge as just merely a colored lodge. But in reality it was mixed. There were many white members as well. Now, ultimately, I guess you have to give a little credit to the climate of the United States at the time, even though people were still deeply and horribly racist all across the country, even though some of the most liberal acting abolitionists there were. The fact that they didn't actually have to go above America's authority, that they eventually did get New Jersey's Grand Lodge to charter them, I think says something, says that there's been some progress since the time of the original Prince Hall Lodge, which had to get some kind of charter from Europe. They weren't able to get one at all within the United States. And just going back to the higher degrees, Black Masons also weren't able to get easy access to initiations into the higher Masonic degrees in Royal Arch Masonry or Scottish Rite Masonry. And of course, just like Prince Hall Masonry, they wanted to have you know, access to the same stuff and the same rituals. So by 1818, there actually was formed the first Prince Hall Royal Arch chapter of Freemasonry. And by 1820, was formed the first Prince Hall Scottish Rite chapter of Freemasonry. So they really didn't take long to create their own Prince Hall adoptive bodies, these higher degrees of Royal Arch and Scottish Rite, but they ended up just using the same rituals created by white masons. But I think, as we'll see, there was a little bit more openness towards the European version of some of these rituals versus some of the American versions. So more of an openness towards the esoteric. And just in general, one indisputable sort of infallible strategy that black masons would use to confer higher degrees that weren't within their own black lodges, because, you know, maybe they maybe even some of them thought well these are brand new I want like the real stuff like I want to go to like a lodge that's been doing this forever that the people there know these degrees very well where can I get those if no American lodges will take a black mason and confer the degrees 4th through 33rd to him well how about doing it in a European country or outside the United States so that's what some of these more resourceful black freemasons did is they obtained these higher degrees outside the US and when they came back None of these American Scottish Rite or Royal Arch chapters were able to say to them, oh, that's not legitimate, because they had already said that these other European lodges and these other bodies in Europe were legitimate. So they can't all of a sudden just say they didn't get legitimate degrees just because they brought them back with them and they happened to be black. No, they can't say that. So they were sort of stuck in a quandary with that. But they still wouldn't accept black men into the Scottish Rite they just sort of had to respect the fact that there were real degrees, you know, but maybe whisper behind their back, you know, fuck this bullshit, like, that's not real. And, of course, the way that they were able to confer these higher degrees in other countries and not the U.S., it's not because they were necessarily less racist than those other countries. It's because that in the United States, you actually already had rules put into the books in masonry and reinforced by people like Albert Mackey and Albert McKay that hadn't been changed yet, mind you, that basically said that one of the rules to join the first three degrees of masonry, the Blue Lodge of Masonry, you had to be free-born. Harry E. Davis says that the earliest preserved minutes that the first Supreme Council of the African Grand Council in Philadelphia of the Prince Hall Scottish Rite was on November 20th, 1855. And this warrant basically reads that they are considering merging with what they call the King David Supreme Council. The King David Supreme Council was actually technically the very first Supreme Council of the 33rd degree of black Masons to claim authority. There's evidence that the famous French Mason, Count de Saint Laurent, the sovereign Grand Inspector General and Deputy of the Supreme Council of the French West Indies of the Scottish Rite, and the Supreme Council of Francis Scottish Rite actually adorned the 33rd degree on an American black Freemason named David Leary in Philadelphia. The Supreme Council of King David, though, didn't seem to actually practice the first to the 33rd degree. It seemed like they actually practiced the Cernu Rite. And the threat of what people back then called Negro Masonry against white Masonry was maybe somewhat quelled by the time it got to 1881, when the Supreme Councils of the Scottish Rite worked a lot of their difficulties out, so did the different Supreme Councils of Prince Hall. And the Prince Hall Supreme Councils of the Scottish Rite divided themselves into the Northern and Southern jurisdiction. And even though Harry E. Davis describes this positively, you can also sort of read it negatively as sort of a compromise so that they never really had to deal with merging with each other and the scottish Rite could just sort of brush them aside and not really have to worry about this pressing issue of merging you know black and white freemasonic lodges together in masonic chronicle volume 9 in the early 1880s there's an article that says something to know there exists a masonic revolution in haiti And of course, two contending grand bodies are bombarding each other with ponderous documents from which, however, we outside barbarians have been enabled to glean some authentic historical facts interesting to the Scottish Rite masons of this nation. Now, the article is basically lamenting about how masonry was quelled after the, quote, insurrection of the blacks on the island of Haiti. And that luckily, after things reacclimated in the country, then masonry came back specifically Scottish Rite masonry did, and there was a time to celebrate because of that. So it's saying that the ancient and accepted rite was introduced into Haiti several years after 1824, the year of independence in Haiti. So right around 1824, they're basically saying that, oh no, seemed like masonry kind of got knocked down because of these rowdy you know, slaves who have kind of taken over the country. And what's interesting is they also say in this article that Haiti was geographically described as St. Domingo, which is the seat of Freemasonic operations for the West Indies. In 1870, the Grand Master of the Caucasian Grand Lodge of Mississippi, Thos S. Gathright, protested black suffrage within his state and recorded his feelings in his address before the Grand Lodge in 1870, says Joseph A. Wax, Jr., in the black square and compass. Gathright said, "'Negroes are not Masons, but by the laws of Congress they are voters. An exciting canvas has just passed in our state and officers have been elected by the votes of a people, formerly our slaves, and are now regarded by us unfitted for the high dignity and weighty responsibility.'" of acting the part of legislators. The Negroes, while they are called in numbers the political power of the state, are not responsible for their being in this country or for occupying the responsible places to which the recent political and social revolution on our midst has assigned them. They are ignorant. And out of the 70,000 who voted in the last election, not 100 thought or reasoned for themselves or could think or reason upon the consequences, immediate or remote, that might follow the result. So, the feelings towards black Freemasonry within the very highest echelons of white Freemasonry in Mississippi, you know, were quite strong. They were not favorable at all towards black Masons. And the Grand Lodge of Mississippi was particularly racist and even had special laws on their books, As Joseph A. Walks Jr. says, As a last and defiant and pathetic act to a situation they could not understand, control, or immediately change, the Grand Lodge voted that the testimony of a Negro, formerly a slave, could not be received in a Lodge trial. How ironic, since the only object of a Masonic trial is to seek the truth. Yet, if the truth be known by a black man, his testimony would not be permitted by this Grand Lodge. A high-up Prince Hall Mason Named Brother James Lynch, became the Secretary of State in Mississippi in the midst of this overreaction of the Caucasian Grand Lodge of Mississippi towards black Prince Hall Freemasons. Also, Brother Reverend Hiram Rhodes becomes the first black man ever elected to the U.S. Senate. This black Mason, Hiram Rhodes, actually filled the Senate seat of former Confederate President Jefferson Davis as soon as black men started winning elected office in high positions whites got scared and threatened and probably even more so because prominent black freemasons were starting to win prominent positions in elected office and to the whites the black masons were scheming to conspire against the whites and rise to power and their worst fears were coming true and of course that these elected officials happened to be freemasons added to their suspicion that the blacks were there to replace the whites. And it spiked it in a way that made it feel more threatening. But of course, it needed to feel more threatening than just Reconstruction era, black people gaining equal place in society to you know, carry the political weight that a lot of the racists you know, wanted it to carry at the time. Anything they could do to make people extra afraid of or to despise black people even more, they would try to do. You know, it was It was information war as well. Prince Hall Freemasonry in the 1870s started to experience new racist backlash after the Civil War. And in one particular example, you can see this playing out under what was a series of anonymous, hateful letters against Missouri Prince Hall representatives, specifically the Grand Master of the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Missouri, Alexander Clark. These were hateful, anonymous letters penned against Alexander Clark calling him a fraud but essentially saying that all black Masons were frauds and that black men were cheaters and liars and that they could never be Masons and that this man Alexander Clark had no authority. Alexander Clark tried to issue a charter granting about a dozen Prince Hall Masons the authority to start a lodge in Mississippi and Missouri you know already had a lot of black Masonic activity, but I guess the fact that he tried to do this in Mississippi is where he quote-unquote crossed the line and evoked the racists in that state, specifically the white Masons in that state, to basically try to subvert him. And this is when the backlash started, coming in the form of letters. Later it was discovered that one of the letters was actually coming from one of the highest white Masonic authorities in the state, who belonged to the Grand Lodge of Mississippi. But then it got worse when the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Mississippi, F.G. Tisdale, decided to chime in and agree with one of his own subordinates who was writing these hateful, anonymous, anti-Black screeds in a local Masonic publication. F.J. Tisdale went at it with Alexander Clark, both different Grand Masters, one alexander clark of the prince hall grand lodge in missouri and another fg tisdale the Grand Master of the white grand lodge of mississippi it was quite an ugly exchange and the whole time alexander clark the black freemason in this battle of words actually was the one who stayed quite gentlemanly in comparison to his rival fg tisdale and some of the other white freemasons So in a way, he displayed much more masonic behavior in his conduct and responses. But F.G. Tisdale actually started his correspondence to Alexander Clark by calling him a bastard. But in this response to Clark, F.G. Tisdale says, The man Clark is a bastard, spurious and illegitimate mason, and has, as our correspondent was inclined to believe, lied. There does not exist a lodge composed of American citizens of African descent. In the United States, and the founder of this Negro so-called Masonic colony, if he received any fees, reveled at the expense of his fellow descendants of Ham. Neither the Grand Lodge is named, nor any other Grand Lodge has by act or deed recognized the clandestine association of Negroes claiming to be Masonic organizations. The Negro Clark knows that his statements are false, but no more false than his pretensions to be a Mason. He is a fraud and a very black one at that. When will the Negroes learn to tell the truth? In Grandmaster Clark's much more polite and gentlemanly response, he says to F.G. Tisdale, Sir, will you permit me a reply through your Masonic columns, under the title The Head of Negroes Trying to Revel as Masons of Mississippi, in which your article does me a great injustice, passing over your unkind, unchristian, and unmasonic remarks on my personal and Masonic character, and ugly names given me on account of my color, I only trouble you with a word and reply to your correspondent. After explaining to Tisdale that the Grand Lodge of England actually Gave them their charter and reminding him of this. He ends his response by saying, I make this statement in vindication of my personal and Masonic character, as colored masonry like white masonry needs no defense. Grand Master, General Clark. We already had attempts at mixed lodges, but this is a little unique. In 1870, at Prince Hall Lodge in New York, Called Progress No. 12 had listed as most of its official members besides one the names of white German Jewish men. Only one of the listed members of Prince Hall Progress No. 12 Lodge was actually black. This was as close as you could find at the time of not just the now existing mixed Prince Hall Lodges but as close as you can find to an actual Caucasian Prince Hall Lodge. The Black Mason who was listed as a member was Progress 12's secretary, who was also the secretary of the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of New York. So this seemingly implies that a high-up-ranking member at the Grand Lodge of New York, Prince Hall faction of masonry, was actively encouraging Prince Hall Lodges to operate in New York that had almost no black members. By the late 1800s, Prince Hall Masons realized that most attempts to seek recognition by American Grand Lodges was pointless. So instead, they continued to seek it out via European lodges, like the Grand Lodge of England and the Grand Lodge of France, Italy, Hungary, and also Peru. But the one that had the most impact in the late 1800s was the German Grand Lodge recognizing them but specifically the advocacy for Prince Hall Lodge's authority in the U.S. by German Freemason Joseph Gottfried Fidel. Brother Fidel was first courted by the Grand Master of the Prince Hall Lodge in Massachusetts, who went by the name Louis Hayden. Grand Master Louis Hayden, Prince Hall Mason, commemorated German Freemason Brother Fidel in his famous Masonry Among Colored Men in Massachusetts, one of his published pamphlets. Just in case you didn't catch it, Brother findell the German Freemason, was made an honorary Prince Hall Grandmaster. He says it would be an outrage at once, revolting and demoralizing, to assess on colored lodges contributions for Masonic purposes, and afterwards deprive these colored brethren and lodges of their Masonic charter. As Masons and shut them out of these lodges. He talks about someone that he knows named Brother Van Kornberg. He says, Brother Van Kornberg will no doubt for a moment that he and with him his lodge mean to resolutely come forward in the defense of the colored brethren. There was actually Masonic regalia that was presented by Master Lewis Hayden of the Prince Hall, Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, to German. Grandmaster Brother Findel and the German Masonic Museum in Beirut. But in World War II, most of the Masonic stuff was destroyed by the Nazis. So that actually didn't survive. The Grandmaster of Prince Hall, Grand Lodge, and Massachusetts, Lewis Hayden, once took militant action against slave catchers. And he threatened what could now be called today a suicide bombing. To protect fugitive slaves he was harboring in his home would you believe me if i said that the samuel l jackson character in the hateful eight major marquis warren is definitely based on albeit loosely a famous prince hall freemason and a militant prince hall freemason one who served in the civil war and black union regiments and who was the only black man in the entire Civil War to reach the rank of major, and who was directly appointed to this rank by Abraham Lincoln himself, who called him, quote, a most extraordinary and intelligent black man. This Prince Hall Freemason's name was Brother Martin Delaney, and he was the son of two free black people. He was a strong anti-slavery advocate before the Civil War, Over 10 years before the Civil War, in his book, Black Americans from 1852, he insisted, quote, we must make an issue, create an event, and establish a national position for ourselves. Now, out of context, that maybe sounds benign, but he was actually advocating for violence. And he even publicly, unabashedly, advocated for violence against slave catchers. And before the Civil War... There was a new law passed in different states that allowed slave catchers to basically have impunity and do whatever they want. They could just break into people's houses and take any black person that they saw fit as being an escaped slave and grab them. And Brother Delaney actually responded by saying that what happens if a escaped slave lands in his house somehow and he decides to harbor him? This is what he says will happen. If any man approaches that house in search of a slave, I care not who he may be, whether constable or sheriff, magistrate or even judge of the Supreme Court. Nay, let it be he who sanctioned this act to become a law, surrounded by his cabinet as his bodyguard. And with the Declaration of Independence waving above his head as his banner and the constitution of his country upon his breast as his shield, If he crosses the threshold of my door and I do not lay him a lifeless corpse at my feet, I hope the grave may refuse my body a resting place and righteous heaven, my spirit, a home. Oh no, he cannot enter that house and we both live. So yes, there is an actual Lincoln letter to Freemason brother Delaney, who was also a major in the Civil War and he actually threatened to kill anybody that he saw fit who tried to enter his home to capture escaped slaves. He also was a strong advocate for a back-to-Africa exodus of black Americans. He released a book called The Origin and Objects of Ancient Freemasonry in the latter half of the 1800s after he took apparently 33 degrees in the Scottish Rite. The book itself pushes the idea of the quote African Rites that Masonry today is basically a mixture of Egyptian and Ethiopian rites from ancient times. And he advocates for the idea of Ethiopia and the black Ethiopians as being the original humans and Ethiopia itself as being the cradle of modern civilization and spirituality. He suggests the black origin of Freemasonry in his book. He says, quote, In the earliest period of the Egyptian and Ethiopian dynasties, the institution of masonry was first established, discovering a defect in the government of man first suggested an inquiry into his true state and condition. The Ethiopians early adduced the doctrine and believed in a trinity of the Godhead. Brother Martin Delaney traveled to Liberia and also met Freemasons there. But I think Brother Martin Delaney, who was a 33rd degree Freemason and Civil War major, an advocate of violence against slave catchers openly previous to the Civil War, deserves the special title of Militant Black Mason, as does Grandmaster Lewis Hayden. Lewis Hayden, who threatened to blow up a powder keg full of explosives if two fugitive slaves were taken from his home by slave catchers. So yes, it was controversial to be advocating for protecting escaped slaves in the 1850s, but it was far more radical to be doing what Moses Dickinson was advocating for. Moses Dickinson was a Prince Hall Freemason and also the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Missouri, who was actively working with people like John Brown and encouraging slave uprisings across the country, but specifically encouraging people to do them in stealth, a secret armed insurrection of black men who would rise up and overthrow slavery. Long after the Civil War was over, and long after this plan that Moses Dickinson hatched, he did an interview with the Denver Post on July 4th, 1901, and he admitted that his group, which he called the Knights of Liberty, was a secret organization which planned to initiate a national insurrection against slavery. Keep in mind, this was an armed insurrection. And Moses Dickinson admits in this paper, quote, it was determined to organize the slaves throughout the South, drill them, and in 10 years from the time, strike for freedom. And he said that the men took an oath of secrecy. Quote, I can die, but I cannot reveal the name of any members until the slaves are free. That was their actual oath of secrecy that they were supposed to take. And Moses continues in this Denver Post interview, he says that 42,000 black men across the country in every southern state except Texas and Mississippi were ready to strike. And he said, quote, plans were complete for a rising. And he said, we expected to have nearly 200,000 men when we reached Atlanta. And his apparent execution date was July 1857. He Says Dickinson orders to tell them were to spare women and children. March fight and conquer, or leave their bodies on the battlefield, he said. And Moses, being quite a religious man, a man of fraternity, said that a higher power was at work, and that they told the Knights of Liberty to wait, have patience, and hold together, that this higher power told him that. Moses Dickinson was a grandmaster of the Prince Hall, Grand Lodge in the state of Missouri in 1869. He started schools for black children, and he also started the Knights of Liberty. But in the 1870s, he actually started a new organization called the International Order of Twelve of Knights and Daughters of Tabor. And this was basically a new kind of Masonic-style organization modeled after Freemasonry. It had its own degree system. It had 12 degrees and it had its own regalia that was very similar looking to Knights Templar regalia or Scottish Rite regalia. But this organization accepted men and women. These people met in temples and in tabernacles. The men and women were segregated into different groups. In this Knights of Tabor organization, this fraternal masonic style organization was very militant looking and acting they had a lot of swordplay, sort of choreography and militant regalia and moses dickinson was actually a mason who was in contact with freemason john brown the man who did the raid on harper's ferry one of the most infamous attempted slave revolts in u.s history That was one of the main catalysts for the Civil War. And apparently Moses Dickinson, even though he shared most of his attitude, he actually tried to dissuade Brown from doing this. In the sixth edition of the Manual of the International Order of Twelve, of Knights and Daughters of Tabor, by Reverend Moses Dickinson, he pretty much goes over most of the things that I already told you, taking credit for a force of 140,000 drilled black men, some of whom were slaves, ready to revolt against the South and slavery at a moment's notice. Moses Dickinson expresses some regret for not ever launching his armed insurrection against slavery. He says, "'It is plain facts that if the South had not insanely commenced the war, whose purpose was to erect a government upon the blood and bones of the Negro, the Knights of Liberty would have made pleasant history for the colored American to read. Let the past sleep,' God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Now, one difference between Prince Hall Freemasonry and the Knights of Tabor, other than the fact that the Knights of Tabor was basically like a parallel, alternate version of Prince Hall Masonry, you didn't have to be a Prince Hall Mason to join it. They weren't higher degrees beyond Prince Hall Masonry. that had its own set of degrees. But one difference between Prince Hall Masonry and the Knights of Tabor is that Moses Dickinson sort of required some loyalty and fealty towards him as a leader. He was a little bit of someone who required idolatry. He sort of carried himself a little bit more like a cult leader. And he also asked that people call him chief. He also takes credit for being behind large parts of the Underground Railroad, other random slave revolts throughout the country. And he also references a time period in Charleston, South Carolina, that was offering $5,000 for the head of William Lloyd Garrison, who was an abolitionist journalist pre-Civil War. Moses Dickinson is sort of commenting on the fact that, oh, wow, they want the head of this journalist when they don't even know that I'm here, basically planning a giant armed insurrection. He says, the very man that was troubling them most was in their midst, and they did not know him. Secrecy is a power. And unlike other sort of Masonic organizations, even ones that involve the ability for both genders to join. The Knights of Tabor was actually not started by Moses Dickinson by himself. It was co started by his wife, Mrs. Mary Elizabeth Dickinson. And unlike Prince Hall Freemasonry, another difference was that Knights of Tabor actually were very inclusive of women. Moses Dickinson says, I must not close this brief history without speaking of the good work done by the noble women all along. And in all the work of the Knights of Liberty, they were ably assisted by women of unwavering courage. They were as true as steel. And Moses Dickinson ends the intro to this manual of the twelve knights and daughters of Tabor. He says, No secret order in the world has a history as grand as that as the international order of the twelve of knights and daughters of Tabor. The members, yes, all colored Americans ought to be proud of its history. Now, there's some contradictory information already in this very nicely printed leather bound manual of the International Order of Twelve of the Knights and Daughters of Tabor. He says, yes, all colored Americans implying that all of the members were all colored Americans. I, I, I believe I'm reading that correctly. But what's interesting is there's a lot of really nice pictures, depictions of the regalia of what the Knights of Tabor looked like in here. And actual black members of the Knights of Tabor wearing the regalia. There's photographs of them. There's drawings of them. But there are a few f- pictures throughout. One of them showing a young girl who looks unmistakably Caucasian called a Taborian made in full regalia. And just to know that I'm not going crazy and just, you know, looking at this picture wrongly, there's also another picture of another Knights of Tabor member uh, who looks like basically just a white, you know, military official with a giant mustache. Uh, Unmistakably, again, a white man dressed in Knights of Tabor regalia. Now, I don't fully understand why this is, why Moses Dickinson says that it's, it's an organization comprised of only colored Americans, when in this book it's not. But just another example of how Moses Dickinson organization was different from Prince Hall Freemasonry. He says in the 12 landmarks of the International Order of Twelve, which are basically sort of the 12 main rules, he says, number one, belief in God and the Christian religion. Number two, obedience to civil authority and patriotism. So, requirement in a belief in generic Christianity. Two, obedience to civil authority, which is simply not true because Moses Dickinson advocated for armed uprisings against slaveholders. That would not be obedience to civil authority. And three, most important, the thirdly ranked rule here is that veneration of Moses Dickinson, the father and founder of the International Order of 12 Of Knights and Daughters of Tabor. So that's sort of how important it was for people to have fealty towards him. But number four, a landmark that was never truly established in Prince Hall Masonry, and maybe only indirectly it was. In Prince Hall Freemasonry, there was a goal of the advancement of the education and prosperity of the black American. But in the International Order of 12, the Knights and Daughters of Tabor, Moses Dickinson says specifically, the fourth landmark is the advancement and protection of the Negro race, not advancing them as people, their education, their betterment, to protect the race itself. It has a little bit more of a a racial component to it rather than sort of the black American identity component to it. Now, one big difference too, I think that's just evident in the fact that I'm reading this beautifully bound leather-bound old manual for the Knights of Tabor. It's the sixth edition produced by Moses Dickinson. Knights of Tabor seem like they have just as much resources as a grand lodge of a state who, you know, would often produce their own sort of annual books or log books or record books or manuals. Prince Hall Lodges, even if they did print that sort of stuff, almost none of it has survived today. Records of it are very hard to find. Copies of actual bound and printed official Prince Hall Lodge Masonic books from the late 1800s, you just can't find them. You simply, I mean, they're they're virtually impossible to find. I've searched and searched for pretty much any type of Masonic book there is. And that's one that surprisingly just almost never comes up. I have found actually reprints or later editions of pamphlets written by famous black masons. White Masonic lodges had a, probably a lot more money and were able to print their manuals much more easily than a Prince Hall lodge was. The Knights of Tabor seemed more resourceful, almost like the Scottish Rite. You know, Moses Dickinson was in charge of all the tabernacles and temple. It all, They all basically went back to one man. Even when Prince Hall was alive, Prince Hall Masonry was never like that. Now, a little later in the podcast, when the Knights of Tabor becomes more prominent in the United States, we're going to talk more about their actual occult and sort of their Masonic and esoteric symbolism, which in and of itself is very interesting and unique. Prince Hall Freemason brother Hiram Rhodes, before he became the first black United States senator, would say this about white Freemasonry. We, so far with such historical data as we at present can reach, can see no essential difference between the course of our colored lodges and the primary American Grand Lodges of our pale brethren. If therefore they cannot affiliate with us, we beg of them, not hastily, to condemn us. We feel that whilst they condemn us, they must condemn themselves to a great degree. We believe too that in time a spirit less marked by prejudice will prevail towards us which we hope to merit and to earn by a close adherence to the ancient pattern of most honorable masons and by our personal efforts to improve in all the moral and social qualities so ennobling to human nature and it was indisputable the fact that white freemasons refused to affiliate with black freemasons condemned themselves They weren't actually condemning the Black Masons, they were in essence condemning their own morals as being fraudulent. That was just a preview clip of a 14 hour long episode. If you'd like to hear the full thing, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash mediaroots to get access to the rest of the series. Thank you very much.